2: Welcome to the Inspired Evolution. I'm your humble host, Amrish Sandu, and you're tuning in to a conscious conversation designed to help you grow. Our mission here is simple. It's for you to live your purpose, live your best life, live the life you love. This podcast is sponsored by Enthusiasm for Life, by Great Creation Itself keep the good vibes flowing for myself and yourself do us a solid subscribe to the inspired evolution podcast on youtube the home of the inspired evolution podcast now sit back relax open your mind open your heart to this conversation and stay inspired keep evolving to the inspired evolution and it is a joyous treat to be here today we have with us none other than dawson church dawson how are you sir
3: i am absolutely in bliss i'm great to be here <laughs>
2: the pleasure is absolutely ours. so glad that you're loving being here for those shooting into dawson for the first time dawson church award-winning author wrote a best-selling book called The Genie in Your Genes, right? And it was a breakthrough in the field of epigenetics. He has published numerous scientific papers focused on remarkable self-healing mechanisms on EFT tapping. He's written other incredible books. And recently, a book on the neuroscience of happiness is probably what I would call it. It's called Bliss Brain. And it's really interesting the roots of where this book came from because it came from the place where actually his house burnt down. It is such a powerfully written book, Dawson what the actual, like, your house burns down and you write a book on bliss.
3: <laughs> <laughs> oh, the house burning, that was just the start, I'm right. that, that was the start. Worst things happened after that. Oh. So.
2: <laughs> Do you want to tell us a little bit about what happened, where the book came from, and a little bit about what's going on here?
3: I wanted to write a book about post-traumatic growth for a while that incorporated mm-hmm. post-traumatic growth. And one of the interesting things about research is I did about 15 years of research on PTSD. I, I worked with a lot of veterans. I uh, we had teams of researchers work with, for example, people whose parents have been killed in the Rwandan genocide, patients who lost their parents in the 2010 earthquake there. And what we found was that of people who go through a traumatically stressful event, about a third of them go on to develop PTSD, but mm. two thirds of them don't. So what's different about that group that doesn't? And so I, I've done a ton of research, I've been involved in many clinical trials of PTSD. And then I wanted to incorporate this, this material into a book. And then I had this cataclysmic event during a bushfire here in Northern California where I live. And literally my wife and I, from the moment we woke up at 12.45 AM, we literally had moments to lit- sprint through the house, grab our car keys and our phones, dash for our car and drive out through the flames. It was one of the most extraordinary initiations that I could imagine (laughs) and we had no no clue it was coming. And it it destroyed 5,400 homes it just wreaked havoc in our community, killed 22 people. Eight of our neighbors died within 1,000 meters of our, our home. They, they were trapped in their cars when the power went out. They they tried to grab a cat or a dog or some other treasured heirloom from their house, and they, they were just too too late to get out. So we had this just shattering experience. And I just, I just finished the manuscript of, of, of a previous book called Mind to Matter. Then came the fire, and it just it just wrecked everything in our lives we, we got photographs yeah. back from friends in the next couple of days when we when we when we fled about 50 miles away and it just showed these concrete slabs ash on top of them lone chimney sticking up the washing mm-hmm. machines and the cars had all melted i mean everything our office building had been burned down we just lost, literally lost everything in that that five minutes so it, it marked this the beginning of a, of a very very long difficult process for us but i realized we realized very quickly that the tools we had like eft acupressure tapping like meditation like social support like love Mm. (laughs) were really all still there for us so that's that's what this brain describes and the elevated emotional states you can get to even in the midst of tragedy
2: yeah wow and so you've just written my uh minor matter and then you've come to this point of Okay, so you've literally like what? What? What was the impetus to write uh, Bliss Brain? So you found that actually going through this massive challenge, there was still the opportunity to cultivate happiness. Is that correct?
3: One day, I was writing in my journal. And I've kept a journal since I was about fifteen years old. So I have fifty years of journals. Wow. And so, although now I now have three and a half years of journals because of the fire, all the others were destroyed in the fire. Yeah and I've, I've been reflecting and journaling for a long time and um, after the fire we we our business just tanked as you can imagine I mean, our office burned down everything we lost all of our records uh mm-hmm. we were we couldn't travel properly so so a lot of, a lot of things happened and one of those was that the business was just just in terrible shape after the fire and yeah. um, i had to actually begin draining my retirement accounts to make payroll and that was really really. Uh, uncomfortable. I mean, you know, I'm in my 60s, and you're you're pulling money out of your retirement account to make payroll every month, and uh, eventually, our our entire retirement sa- savings were gone. And so, I remember one day I was sitting there, again facing a financial crisis the year after the fire, and I wrote in my journal about just how prosperous I felt. I felt totally abundant, totally totally prosperous, totally taken taken care of by the 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 universe, and I realized Mm. I was in an ecstatically blissful state, and I thought there's this discrepancy between all of the material circumstances of my life and this elevated emotional and spiritual state I'm just just in. in, I wrote about it in my journal. I thought I want to share this with people. Let them know that happiness is not dependent upon what happens to you, you can lose everything. You can lose worse than everything and still be happy at your core i began looking into the, into the neuroscience of this as well and they're really interesting neurochemicals that we our brains manufacture during peak meditation meditation states and also brain regions that turn on so i began to look into the neuroscience of this and i lay all of it out in this brain and about how you can just cultivate these states in your life in your brain in your body even when things aren't going swimmingly on the outside <laughs> and
2: how do we go about cultivating this uh, according to you
3: Consistency. Uh, Donald Hebb's brilliant neuroscientist after World War II, made the if, if if people know nothing about neuroscience, they know Hebb's law, which is that neurons that fire together wire together. Wire together. Yeah. Yep. And the extent to which this happens is uh, is is, is now only now it is being discovered. So you have to do it consistently. There's a, there's a study, a, a case history in bliss brain about an Australian TV producer called Graham Phillips. was Mm -hmm. a show called Catalyst. And he took a crew with him into a high-resolution MRI facility, Mm -hmm. had extensive scans done of his brain, then began an eight-week meditation course, learned mindfulness, began to meditate daily, and again, that consistency. When the researchers looked at his brain, just two months later, they found that the emotion regulation circuit in the center of the emotional part of the brain, the limbic system had grown by 22.8% in eight weeks. That is how quickly our brain hardware is growing. So if you're consistent about meditation, consistent about tuning into those higher energies, if you're consistent about compassion, kindness, love, just sit there in the morning and fill yourself with gratitude and all these wonderful pro-social emotions. If you do that over and over and over again, as Donald Hebb said 70 years ago, neurons mm. that fire together, wire together, and then you're literally increasing the hardware in your brain. So now resilience is not just a personality characteristic, a state, it's a trait. It's who you are. You built those neurons in your brain and you have the fire, you have the job loss, you have the divorce, you have getting, you get fired all all bad things happen to people. But if you have that neural hardware in your brain, like Graham Phillips, you are resilient. So the, the good news is that if you just are consistent about these practices, not a long time, half an hour meditation in the morning will move the needle. An hour is better, but half an hour will do it. So do it, do it all the time. When you feel impatient, Aubrey, you're, you're, you're feeling, angry and you're feeling resentful and negative emotions, just breathe or do EFT tapping, really simple little technique, just tapping on acupuncture points like this, like like I'm doing now, just tapping on these points in your body and your cortisol drops dramatically in only a few minutes. So cortisol drops, you're changing your body's biochemistry, changing neural function, and then you become become a much happier person. So consistently doing every single day, l- releasing negative emotion, and meditating will give you, that's the practice it takes to get there.
2: I love that. Thank you so much. And I love how simple it is. And one of the key thing that I wanted to drop into is one of the pieces of research you've gone away and done, and this is a question I've always wanted to know, is the minimum effective dose. (laughs) (laughs) Because there's always this conversation around, you know, it's like, I know I can meditate for hours and hours and hours. And then it's like, but what is it that's really gonna move the needle? And I heard you say about eight weeks, Roughly how long a day for eight weeks would you suggest is the the minimum effective dose before we start seeing some of this actual hardware change in our minds?
3: Yeah, and I asked those questions and I didn't ask them of of spiritual masters. I asked them of neuroscientists. Mm. I wanted hard evidence. So in all my books, they're all about science. I want to know what the science tells us. And in meditation, in all kinds of areas of our lives, in goal setting, in optimal health, I can tell you that most of the stuff you read on websites and in popular books, a lot of it is just somebody's good idea about what that might be. I go for the research. What is the hard science? What is the statistical evidence for each of those things? So I, I, I examined all of those questions, like what is the least amount of meditation you need? Because if you know if if, an, if half an hour a day will do it. Why spend an hour a day? Now you can spend an hour a day if you have the time, Mm -hmm. but what does it take to move the needle? And it turns out the number is is pretty low. In some studies, 12 minutes a day, eight weeks begins to produce brain change. What mm. I found the sweet spot is, is about 25 minutes. Uh, yeah, a th- little under 30 minutes will will shift people. In one study I did with, with colleagues at Bond University on the Gold Coast, I did these, this, this randomized control trial, looking at the structure and function of people's brains before and after a four week meditation course, 22 minutes a day. And what we found was that in only four weeks, there are anatomical changes in the brains of people doing efficient meditation. Now, think about that. Brain anatomy changing. This is not your thoughts changing. This yeah. is the structure of your brain changing, and it only took half an hour a day. So half an hour a day, and the books full of these questions like, which techniques are most effective? And I'm sorry to tell you that most of the stuff that people are doing and calling meditation is not very effective. And a lot of it's counterproductive. So we want to pick effective science-based techniques like that. And again, half an hour seems to be the sweet spot.
2: And is some of the most effective techniques based and rooted in mindfulness? Or what did you find in in your research?
0: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
3: Well, controlling the mind and mm-hmm. controlling thoughts and stilling your mind is usually somewhere on a continuum between ineffective and useless. <laughs> you can't do it. I mean, the mind is meant to think. Yeah. I, I have birds that have feed, a feeder outside my window. And like, you know, when I, you know, when I eat, I love food. I love clean water. I love wine. So when I eat, I eat each bite. I eat mindfully, mm-hmm. I try and breathe mindfully. There's all this mindful ritual. My wife and I, and we have friends over, we bless the food, all this mindfulness. I watch the birds outside my window, forget about it those birds they peck at the bird feed they look up and they look around they look down they peck at the bird feed a little bit more (laughs) looking up and around and down yeah nothing mindful whatsoever what's your cat eat what's your dog eat nothing mindful about it whatsoever Uh so you think about how evolution evolved our brains Mm. the birds eat that way because there's a cat down below the bird feeder and every once in a while, that cat makes an unbelievably athletic leap and eats a bird, grabs a bird, and that bird is no more. So those birds are not eating flee. Not only is there a cat down below, there's a hawk that circles up above us every once in a while, and then we'll swoop down and grab a bird that's not wary. So nothing about our evolution encouraged us to have a still mind. It encouraged us. It evolved people who had a highly active and busy mind. ADHD was a huge evolutionary advantage. (laughs) So we didn't evolve to be mindful. And when the guru tells you, which the guru told me when I was 15 years old and joined the spiritual community. And the guru said, all you do is you close your eyes and you still your mind. It's like, oh, 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 no oh. way, <laughs> not going to happen. So, so those kinds of techniques usually are not not very useful. What I what I teach is physiological techniques. Just one one example, I'll teach one right now. Absolutely. If you relax your tongue on the floor of your mouth, you can't get angry or upset or have a negative emotion. You cannot you cannot have a negative emotion. With your tongue relaxed, because when you have a negative emotion, your tongue gets rigid. And if you relax your tongue, you automatically drop into what's called parasympathetic mode. So, very simple test just relax your tongue, try and get pissed off. You can't do it. So, I teach physiological techniques, how to breathe, which muscles to relax like that. Those are the ways to meditate successfully.
2: Ah oh, I love it and I did try that and it's actually really amazing. <laughs> yeah it's so simple so simple and it's 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 quite, it's quite profound isn't it the um the yeah. relationship that the mind has with our physiology it's it's beyond incredible it's you know like standing up with your shoulders straight head up you know and you feel much more open and you know like I'm going through this phase at the moment, like we've literally just got a little a newborn baby and it's like a lot of sleepless nights and I can see the posture sort of crunching. In. And then as your posture sort of crunches in, your thoughts start to get cloudier and cloudier and it's like, actually, no, I need to sort of take some time to sort of interact with my physiology in a way to encourage it, to cultivate a certain way that I can actually move forward with a different perspective. And it actually impacts how I think, how I perform, how I approach my day.
3: Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely, and and so you want to pick meditative techniques that use physiology to move you into those states. Mm. Trying to do it mentally is is hard and for impossible for most people. So just breathe at a certain rhythm. Like if you take six second in breaths and six second out breaths, that puts you into heart coherence. And you can do a lot of classes and courses and get gadgets to put you into heart coherence. But if you just breathe six seconds in, six seconds out, you will be in heart coherence. Other little hacks put you into deep heart coherence. Mm Other little hacks put you into into parasympathetic relaxed dominance. So we we have people do all of these things, none of them which require mindfulness. And so the book is pretty um, rigorous about that. It says these are things that really move the needle. And I'll tell you what neuroscience shows us moves the needle more than any other technique in meditation. Mm -hmm. And by move the needle, I mean what produces the fastest growth of neural tissue in the brain? What produces the fastest positive neural plasticity? Because a lot of stuff just doesn't have much effect, mm. and the the thing that neuroscience shows us is the fastest for producing those growth. That growth in those neural bundles is compassion. If you have love in your heart, if you're sitting there with, with with gratitude, if you're feeling compassionate toward yourself and others in the universe, that moves the needle in terms of changing your brain structure faster than anything else.
2: Why do you think that is the case? Is it as simple as having compassion actually was the key evolutionary tool for human beings, being able to support each other? Is that, do you think it's as simple as that? <laughs>
3: You know, I mean, I was, I've been really wrong in my scientific career about a number of things, and it's a pretty long list of things I've been wrong about. And one of the things I've been wrong about was in the Genie in Your Genes, the first edition of the book, 15 years ago, I wrote, we cannot escape caveman. I call it, I call it caveman brain. Mm. And so a huge amount of the neural mass in our brains is like the birds designed to detect and evade threats. Mm. So finding opportunities, finding the seeds, and evading the hawk and the cat. So Mm -hmm. that's, I mean, that bird brain is a tiny little peanut-sized organ there, but that bird brain is really good at detecting threats and opportunities. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the human brain is to do this as well. A lot of the emotional brain, a lot of the thinking brain is about that as well. And if we let ourselves give in to caveman brain and negative thinking, Mm -hmm. because again, the brain has a negativity bias, that's the way our ancestors survived the most paranoid people survived and the happy-go-lucky people
2: <laughs> mm, <laughs> really yeah.
3: cool. So, uh, you know, we, we have this massive, of, 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 so I, in Genie in Your Genes, the first edition, a long time ago, mm-hmm. I was writing, you can't escape the fact you have a K-man brain. The best you can do is modifying your behavior. And I was completely wrong about that because newer neuroscience, new MRI scans of people who are in ecstatic states, Tibetan monks who've spent 10,000 hours or more meditating, Franciscan nuns, female nuns who've been in a convent contemplating the divine for these for years. These are our modern day Rumi's and St. Teresa of Avila's and St. Francis of Assisi's. These are our modern day saints. We now stick them in an MRI and see what's going on in their brains. And it turns out that just our, as, our, as our brains do have all this neural tissue mm-hmm. devoted to the stress response, they have a whole circuit called the enlightenment circuit. It has four subcomponents and we can light up that enlightenment circuit and make that bigger and stronger. And when we do that, we start to touch heaven. We start to have these ecstatic human human experiences far beyond our local awareness. So that's what you wanna cultivate, the ability to be in the, turn on the enlightenment network, be in those elevated states, touch the non-local, be one with all that is, and you do that over and over and over again and you just get super happy your house burns down you go broke and you're sitting there in bliss (laughs) it's it's amazing (laughs) it's incredible
2: so those i this enlightenment pathway network so I'm, i'm hearing you say compassion is one of the key things that is like just it's steroids for lighting up that um, that pathway what about um what else is in there because i know you mentioned kindness i know you mentioned love um are these all the feel good like gratitude is probably in like what are some of the other things that are in there in terms of um helping us support that that pathway
3: yeah we we say compassion and i say compassion in the book because that's what the research uh looks for Mm. is compassion meditation but in reality it's all positive emotion after a while, then there are phases of this. There are kind of stages in this development. Um, mm-hmm. But after a while, all emotion merges together in a single, overwhelming positive emotion. You can't even name it, but it's a combination of love and gratitude and bliss, mm-hmm. ecstasy, compassion. It's simply a, a massively transformative emotion. And one of the cool things I have a section in this brain where I, I went and looked at the the neurochemistry of An orgasm, you're having sex with a partner and you have an orgasm. So what happens in your brain chemistry? And I then profile that in the book in one chapter, I think chapter six, I profile the brain chemistry in the the brain of a meditator. So we we read about Rumi having these ecstatic experiences in poetry. And then St. Francis talks about his his, his experience of, of prayer as though it's an orgasm. Mm -hmm. And you look at the sex neurochemicals, dopamine, serotonin, anandamide, oxytocin, prolactin, produced during orgasm, and those produced during meditation, Mm -hmm. and they're the same. So these people, I mean, they were celibate for the most part, but they were having these ecstatic, orgasmic experiences, and you can too. I said that sometimes in meditation, I, I meditate for a while and I'm just crying with, I'm, I'm literally weeping with ecstasy. Mm. It's like, where do I put all the love? I feel all this love just descending mm. from non-local mind into not, into local me, and I oh. don't know what to do with it all. So you cry, you weep, you, you moan with ecstasy when you're in those states. And the thing is, everybody's brains have the ability to get there.
2: Touch wood. That is so special. And do you think that is just a function of having cultivated the practice of meditation to such a depth? Is that what you would suggest?
3: It takes a while. Mm. And the while, again, is four weeks. In that Bond University study, people listened to the special meditation track based on all these science techniques, relax your tongue, six second breaths. They did all that for four weeks. And in four weeks, they had. Uh, their whole compassion network of their brain was lit up and there was growth in that, that network. that was actually bigger than before. And there's a part of the brain called the mid-prefrontal cortex that is the seat of our self-awareness, which is a good mm. thing. Self-awareness is generally a good thing, except that it's usually suffering. And our self-awareness usually is wrapped up with bad stuff in the past we want to avoid. Bad stuff in the future, we'd rather not think about. And so, all of these things are part of the mid prefrontal cortex. And in that Bond University study, the prefrontal cortex, the mid prefrontal cortex, that is the seat of suffering, just went on ice. Just as like turning off a light switch, went which just shut way down. So you get used to shutting it way down over and over and over again, and you can do it in five minutes usually or less. And then you light up the compassion network. So now the suffering self goes dark, the compassion network is brightly lit up and you are in this wonderful elevated state. And we showed in that study, it took a half hour daily for only a month. So <laughs> you can start to get there very quickly.
2: I love that. I, I don't know how to frame this next piece of this next question. So bear with me, but is there like a, um I want to say ironic, but is it, is it somehow come on, you can do this. <laughs> so, Compassion seems to have this idea of wanting to be like compassionate is caring for others. Yeah. And then these modalities build resilience within us at first sight. Does it not seem that resilience is something where it's like, if I was resilient, I need fortification and I sort of kind of want to retreat into myself. However, is it not counterintuitive that actually the thing that helps me build resilience, more fortification is more openness and caring about others and giving to others. There we go. I got there with the question. No,
3: that's a good one because um, Wilhelm Reich coined a wonderful phrase of the 1920s, one of the brilliant people of early psychology he called it body armor and that's to be defended that's having a, a barrier around you and you can see sometimes you work with people and you can tell their shoulders are rigid another one i'll turn sideways so you can see this so i'm I'm not turning sideways you'll see a lot of men especially, especially men who are traumatized you'll see their their shoulders are forward and their heart is pulled back like this they're literally mm-hmm heart back from contact with others. People who are loving, people who are relaxed about their being, their heart is, their chest is forward like this, their shoulders are back. They hug you and you can feel they're they're advancing. That's the opposite of body armor. So resilience doesn't come from having good body armor. Resilience Mm. comes from having a huge amount of what the, the Taoists uh, called chi you have all this energy this is human energy in you so you're confident you have a, a presence about you your heart's moving outward and then there's bad stuff that happens to you still but you are resilient because the pressure inside of you of, of love and compassion is greater than the than the, uh, the pressure that's coming at you from the outside i had one experience many years ago that was really unfortunate and there was a guy who uh who who had an issue with me and he sued me. He actually had two lawsuits against me, and they ran on for years. And I would talk about him, I'd share them, you know, what had happened in the lawsuit with my with my wife. And this was like year after year after year. And um, I'd say to her, you know, I, I feel such compassion for this guy because he's su- suffering. Only r- people who are really suffering do things like sue other people.
1: Mm-hmm. And she'd
3: say, Well, I don't feel compassion. I'm mad as hell at this yeah. guy. She was, she was angry at that guy. And he, and, and yet I, I felt nothing but compassion. I'll tell you, so, someone else, uh, we've just had Donald Trump leave the White House in the US. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I have so many friends who, who have been so offended by his language, by his lies, by all the things he's done. But you look at that face, and if you want to see a face of a man who's suffering, it, it just you know I, I can't look at the face of Donald Trump without just dissolving into compassion because he is mm. suffering so so very much and mm. so all of those actions are, are those of someone who's suffering. the people who are hurting you who are annoying you or triggering you believe me they are not having a good day mm. and the, the best thing you can do for them is, is is compassion so find someone who annoys you a lot Now Donald, Donald Trump's gone he's out of office but here in the. US in Louisiana there is a congressman member of Congress called Clay Higgins. And Clay Higgins said last year he'd like to shoot Black Lives Matter protesters. It's so not that I don't have Donald Trump to you know, worry about in the White House. Clay Higgins is still around. I just, you know, I find that really hard. I mean, I, I get emotionally triggered when Clay Higgins talks about shooting Black mm-hmm. Lives Matter protesters. And so that's clearly an area. I have a hard time moving into compassion around clay higgins so he is my guru he's my teacher i think about clay higgins mm. and I, I i would sit with clay higgins like and i can love him unconditionally
2: <laughs> yeah so that's that's really profound it's taking yeah. your biggest triggers and your biggest challenges yeah. and almost seeing if you can not reject him and actually shower him in love <laughs> it's yes, like it's a whole, wow wow Dawson, one of the things we just touched on chapter six where you said, you know, we were comparing the, the meditation with the, um, yeah, the, the, the orgasmic states that we we're in. You move in from like chapter seven onwards into this idea of like actually moving through tra- post-traumatic growth. And one of the most amazing things that I found interviewing people on the Inspired Evolution and again and again, and the audience is probably, I'm not sure if you're tired of listening to me say this, but <laughs> I'm just driving on the point. I find again and again, people that are doing remarkable things have always been through quite a significant challenge in their life. It's almost like the the, the narrative of the hero's journey is an archetype that is commonly played out. It's almost like what the, the sword that helps you defeat the dragon becomes your gift to humanity in many instances. And I just wanted to tune in and sort of go, you know, post-traumatic growth, how important like are these challenges for us to then cultivate these, you know, because oftentimes I find that old Rumi quote, the crack is where the light gets in, you yes. know? So how much do you find that these these traumatic uh, ac- instances, instances? Uh, were really supportive for people to actually come home to, you know, finding your work potentially even or finding a modality in a practice? And how, where do we go from there in terms of is it, like a matter of just cultivating the same practices that we've been discussing, or is there something specific about post-traumatic instances that we need to take into account?
3: It's worth doing the practices before the trauma. Mm -hmm. It's one thing to look for help when you're in a trauma or in the middle or going through a difficult situation. But if you are in a reasonably stable situation and you're then meditating you're doing EFT active pressure tapping to release your stress during the day. You're you're drawing on social support. You are spending time in nature, you're grounding yourself, all of these practices, and you're doing those regularly. You build resilience so you're ready for the bad stuff. Also, I want to just emphasize that the bad, that that being ready for the bad stuff and ha- being, having resilience has nothing to do with denial or repression, you're not repressing the bad stuff and you're not Mm. doing positive thinking, trying to overcome negative thinking. It isn't like, okay, this is tragedy and I'm just gonna do positive thinking around it. That is dissociation and dissociation the research is super, super clear about this. You have to face the bad stuff. In Mm. EFT tapping, the basic formula is called the, the, the setup statement. So you think about the bad thing, you think about the tragedy, And then the basic formula verbally is, even though this bad thing happened and you really focus on the bad thing, while you focus on the bad thing, you're tapping on acupuncture points and releasing the stress that your body accumulates there. And then you say after that, even though the bad thing happened, I deeply and completely accept myself just the way I am. So you are facing, remembering the bad thing. And this is not denial, it's not dissociation, it's really facing up to the, that bad thing. In fact, very often we have, we have people who we work with as when, when, when our, our practitioners work with clients, this may be the first time they've ever had a safe space to really face that childhood molestation or mm-hmm. that violence or that death or that loss. And they sit there with it and they they work on it, they face it. But when you do that, The resilient person is able to move through. So you have to face it, but you have to face it with tools. Don't face it alone. We recommend that people are traumatized. Work with a practitioner. Don't go Mm. into PTSD Mm. memories by yourself. Work with a practitioner. Find someone trained. We have thousands of trained practitioners who who know how to do this. Mm. And have them monitor you and steer you through trauma. The good news is that in our clinical trials, it takes an average of six one hour sessions. And this is to take people from high levels of clinical PTSD, Mm. flashbacks, nightmares, intrusive thoughts, hypervigilance, all the signs of PTSD. And in in six one hour sessions, they're done. They're sleeping. One Vietnam veteran said to his, his practitioner when he came in for his second session, he said, after my first session, I got my first full night's sleep since Vietnam. Wow. So it makes that much of a difference. And then it takes six more sessions and most people are just done with those, those symptoms. Not everyone. Unfortunately, in our research, about nine out of 10 people recover fully. One mm. out of 10 doesn't. And I, I wish we could help them too, but mm-hmm. they, they may, may need other things.
2: 90%, 90% is still an amazingly high success rate. Now, one of the things I was going to ask was, what if there's some things that are too painful to look at? Do you find that there are potentially some things that people find it really difficult to go into? And, But I imagine that's potentially where a practitioner is really supportive.
3: Definitely. There was one uh, in, in a documentary they made about this work, there was one Vietnam veteran who said, okay, I'm going to work on these memories with you, but there are much more memories that are behind the wall. I mm. won't go there. But after two or three days, he was going behind the wall because he'd realized he'd worked on the memories in front of the wall mm-hmm. and they'd all dropped down low. So we have three, what are called the gentle techniques to use for memories so triggering, so traumatizing that you can't deal with them. I remember w- have worked with a guy in New York, in England uh, a few years back. And this man just seemed really sad. And I talked to him during one of the breaks from the workshop and he said, My mother just died. I've had a family crisis. My my wife is really sick. He just reeled off a whole bunch of traumatic events, more from his childhood. He said, I feel like the little boy with my finger in the dike. And if I pull my finger out and just a little bit of water trickles out, it'll turn into a flood that'll obliterate me. And Mm. so what do you do with people like that? And we have three techniques called the gentle techniques. And they are able to let people they give people a safe distance from their their trauma. One of them is we put the trauma in a box. We wrap it up in a package and then they'll they'll tap on the box, not on the trauma itself. I talked to one woman, I said, is okay, put the trauma in a box and let's put the trauma box in a bank vault and let's move the bank vault across town. How's that? And she said, let's move the bank vault to Mars. (laughs) So we tapped on the bank vault on Mars and eventually her numbers, her triggering went down. We were able to then bring the bank vault back to earth. We tapped on it again. She was eventually able to open the bank vault, bring out the box and work on the memory. It was a ch- child molestation at the age of two. It was a very, very difficult um, issue to work on. But again, in one session, she was over it. In fact, she her initial problem was not that. She didn't even remember the child molestation. Her initial problem was fear of public speaking. So it began as fear of public speaking but quickly it developed into trauma. I had to use those three gentle techniques. By the end of the session, Amrit, so I said to her afterwards, once once she was laughing and smiling and all this was was, was gone, that day I said to her now, I wanna test this, we're in front of a big class now, turn to the class and give a public speech about what you do. She was a massage therapist. Uh And she turned to the whole class, she was smiling and laughing, telling him about her love for being a massage therapist. So I thought, I wonder if he's really over it. I said, okay, there's a table here. I'm gonna make this table into a stage, put a chair in front, walk up on the stage and tell everyone.
2: <laughs> sure. How did she go?
3: And there's this wonderful photograph on our website of her standing on top of the table, smiling and laughing and gesturing, and she was so over it all. So it's oh. people. People's ability to heal constantly astonishes me. Mm.
2: Do you find with the, I find, I find it really interesting because I start looking into the biology of like when I start watching healing journeys of people, it's almost like the body and the mind have a natural propensity for healing, but it's almost like we're in our own way. Do you find that? Is Am I making Absolutely. sense? I
3: mean, you study the body, our bodies are healing machines. They just, this is what they do. They heal. Yeah. And we have, to have, we have to place obstacles in front of them, our bodies to stop them healing. And one of the pieces, hugely influential pieces of research is called the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, ACE study. And it showed that if people have adverse childhood experiences, the death of a parent, divorce of a parent, a parent mm-hmm. who's a substance abuser and so on, that those people, again, they're having these adverse experiences when they're two, three, four, five, six years old, 50 years later, they have more cancer, they have more heart disease, they have more diabetes, they have more smoking, more suicide attempts, more obesity, you name it, they got more of all the bad stuff. And they're dying a lot mm-hmm. sooner than those who don't have adversarial experiences. So our bodies heal naturally, but if our psychology is full of fight or flight, if we're looking around for the threats and driving our cortisol sky high, I've done several studies of cortisol And we find that most people are walking around as though they're in the jungle. And Mm -hmm. that's why I love the idea of the evolution you talk about on on your show, because we need to evolve beyond that and realize we are safe, we are secure, despite the pandemics we've experienced and the financial uncertainty and the economic disruption and political chaos, We are fundamentally much more secure than our ancestors 100 years ago. Our lifespan is double what theirs were. The average prosperity of the average global citizen has tripled since 1980. We are having we have really good lives compared to our grandparents, great grandparents. We need to start living as though we did. Drop our cortisol and move into the bliss and joy that we deserve.
2: Mm, I love that, and listening to the Good News Network is like it's yeah, I'm all about yes. that. Because there's yeah, like you know, when you turn on media and the way that it's, it's that dumps in so much cortisol, the way that it comes in as well these days, it's like you know this fear, that fear, and yeah, there's there's just a lot going on with that. Um, I wanted to ask a question basically around we've talked about you know and i think this ace stuff is really important realizing that you know stuff drops in really early and using these practices and these modalities and getting out of our own way we actually do a lot more for ourselves than we can even imagine in the moment you know it can actually really support us down the down the path as well so thank you so much for that insight i did want to ask you a question today around nature versus nurture we're talking about new resilience we're talking about the neurochemistry of happiness like. Are some people more wired for a certain propensity for resilience and happiness versus others, or is it mostly a cultivated sense? Um, Bit of both? What's your insights there?
3: Yeah. Yeah. So we all have an amygdala, hippocampus, hypothalamus. We all have that limbic system. We all have that threat detection machinery in our brains. Some people, though, are more wired for it than others, and their relative mass of those regions might be more, or they may have had it cultivated more by uh, adverse childhood experiences at an early early age, they may have more neural tissue or faster firing neural tissue. There's one really interesting early study of um, twin twin men. So identical mm. twins born with the same genome, they should theoretically have the same gene expression. They should have, get the same diseases. They should die around the same time, and they don't. And this study looked at at identical twin men. And one of the men had been to fight in the Vietnam War and the other one had not. And they found that those who had been in Vietnam had much faster firing of the stress circuits in their brains. So Mm -hmm. identical genes, identical brains at birth, and then that experience at the age of 18, 19, 25 had actually changed the functioning of their brains. So we have a predisposition growing up and then we are gonna modify that that gradually. I mean, I used to have low-level anxiety. My just I, I could never escape it. And now I don't. I I, I used to be when I was a kid, I told a story in Whispering about how when I was a child 15 years old, 12 years old, I was suicidal most days. I just couldn't stand being here. I couldn't stand being in a body. I was so depressed and anxious. I couldn't stand being existing. I didn't think I deserved to exist. And so that was my early, you know. 15, 19, 20, 25 year old reality. And you learn these things, learn energy healing, learn meditation, and you just fundamentally change not just your attitude and your 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 beliefs, you change your biology and you start to have a, a happy brain and you literally start to re- rewire your brain. So we have what we were born with, our genetic reality. But in Genie in Your Genes, I look at the research and it shows the newest overview of research is that about 15% of our genome is fixed. Mm. It's totally fixed. I have gray eyes. I have gray, grayish brown hair. That's just not going to change. I'm never going to become an African-American. You know, Mm. it's just like, that's just, that's just a fixed part of my genome. 85%, 85% of your genome is changing based on inputs from your biology if you, from, from, and, f- and from epigenetics. If you eat junk food, you're turning on different genes in your gut than if you eat healthy organic food. Just one simple thing. I, I, I sometimes hook people up to um, uh, uh, a monitor that monitors your stress levels your, inside your body. And I get them nice and calm. And on my monitor, there were all these buttons and all these bulbs and they all turn green. Now they're nice, nice and relaxed, but feeling good. I then say, think a negative thought. Think one negative thought and all the lights on the control panel turn red. Their cortisol is going way up. Their immune system is just crashing. All of these things from one negative thought. So mm. don't be casual about negative thoughts because cumulatively you may think one by one by one. Well, I can think of your negative thoughts today. Maybe, what really hurt me? I'm not gonna age 10 years overnight. But if you look at the face of that person in three years and five years, epigenetically, all of those negative thoughts are taking a severe toll. And just one study, one huge giant study of 63,000 adults Showed that pessimists die on average 10 years earlier than optimists.
1: Cumulatively,
3: the effect is fatal.
1: Mm.
2: Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. That is profound. (laughs) Dawson, You have written a whole book called Bliss Brain. You have supported so much work in terms of helping people live more freer, enriching lives. What was the specific intention behind Bliss Brain? And what are you hoping um, for this book as it reaches the
3: world? I want to read lots of people. Uh, my publisher, I have one, I've one publisher, Hay House. So my previous book, Mind to Matter, has sold uh, over 100,000 copies in the first year. It's sold in mm. German, French. And so we're just getting started now with, with Bliss Brain in the first year. And I so want people to know, Amrit, that they can be much happier than they are. We have these set points for happiness and they're way too low, mm. way too low. We literally can live lives of overwhelming bliss with all of these pleasure neurochemicals like oxytocin and and serotonin and dopamine, anandamide. Anandamide is called the bliss molecule Mm -hmm. because you feel absolutely blissful when it's slushing around in your brain. So we can have much higher levels of all of these pleasure chemicals than we thought we could have. And so it's wanting people to question their reality. Every negative thought, what is it doing to me? Can I afford that? And the answer is no. You wanna meditate, you wanna have a practice, a daily practice of meditation, daily practices of stress reduction, use tapping, use other things, and then implement those in your life today. I, I began to meditate daily in 2000. 2000 was the year I began to meditate every single day. And I was having a lot of challenges in my life around that time. And within a few weeks, money, changed for me. My relationships changed. My relationships with my children changed. My social interactions changed. You will see things change dramatically, usually in a few weeks, once you commit to that daily meditation practice. So what I so want you to do hearing this is just download. I've I've eight free meditations at blissbrain.com. Download those meditations, listen to them every morning, and then start to practice consistently. Build those neural bundles, fire those neurons together, wire them together, and you'll start to feel happier and more joyful immediately. Now, it's worth keeping on for a while. We know 30 mm-hmm. days, we'll move the needle, but do it ongoing. You'll feel so wonderful with all these pleasurable neurochemicals. You'll want to do it over and over and over again. I basically want to get people addicted to meditation, addicted to feeling good, to where they would never dream of not meditating because they can't. <laughs> Dad to be away from all those bliss drugs. So
2: <laughs> I'm so on board with that. And thank you so much. It has been such a pleasure to support that mission here today. Dawson, thank you so much for sharing yourself so abundantly. The insights, the, oh man, there is so much in this episode. And I know that it's not just today that we get to revel in this chat. It's a lifetime's work that's informed this conversation. So thank you so much for all you've put into it. And uh, yeah, on behalf of myself and the Inspire Evolution audience, wishing you all the best always.
3: Thank you so much. I appreciate that. And I look forward to connecting with everyone in that great non-local field. Thank you.
2: Thank you so much for tuning in to this amazing episode of the Inspired Evolution. Without you, the Inspired Evolution tribe, this podcast would not be what it is today. Thank you so much for your love and your support. Thank you so much for being so inspired to evolve. It's truly inspiring. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe to the Inspired Evolution on YouTube, the home of the Inspired Evolution's video podcast. We release inspiring conversations such as this every week, along with guided meditations, and empowering insights all designed to help you grow and evolve. Honestly, your subscription on YouTube to the channel helps us out a great deal. And one of the other benefits, if you're having any insights or shifts from these episodes that you want to chat about, or if you'd like to leave myself or the guest a message, please do so in the comments on YouTube. I truly look forward to hearing from you. And as always, Tribe, remember to stay inspired and keep evolving.